Well, hello there. Welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. I am Scott. Joining me today is Drew. Hello there. And uh, some time ago, uh, a little over three years now, uh, we did a whole episode on time travel films without somehow mentioning Robert Zemeckis and uh, Bob Gale's Back to the Future series, uh, their bold updating of Oedipus. Uh, So today we will remedy that oversight and see if the pride of 1985 and its follow-ups live up to their reputations and also their posters. Remember when movie posters were good? So we'll start things off by taking a look at that very first entry into the series, which is uh, Back to the Future. So, Drew, in case anyone doesn't know, what's that about? Yeah, so that is exactly how I started my nose off, Scott. Um, yes. Back to the Future does feel like one of those films I don't actually need to describe, uh, having found its way into popular culture in so many ways, in particular as a shorthand for a type or a mechanic of time travel. But I am acutely aware more so by the day, that someone is born every second who hasn't seen it, so perhaps you, dear listener, haven't either. The setup is this. In 1985, in the California town of Hill Valley, Christopher Lloyd's Dr Emmett Brown, a cross between your typical mad scientist type and a failed inventor, has finally made something that works. A time machine, powered by a device called a flux capacitor. He has housed this machine within an example of the rubbish but striking DMC DeLorean, and created perhaps the most iconic car in film history. To document the first test, Doc Brown enlists the help of his friend, Michael J. Fox's totally a teenager, Marty McFly, no one's buying it but his short stature helps sell it a little, to operate the video camera, and an astonished Marty watches as the car, and the Doc's dog, disappears before his eyes and then reappears a minute later. Super successful! and only requiring a mere 1.21 gigawatts of electricity per trip, supplied by the everyday hardware store staple of plutonium, (laughs) which the dock has ripped off from a group of Libyan terrorists. These Libyans, super pissed and wanting their plutonium back, suddenly appear and shoot down the dock. Marty flees in the DeLorean and, when he hits the magical speed of 88 miles per hour, disappears to 30 years earlier. Back in 1955, a bewildered Marty accidentally disrupts the meeting of his parents, causing a rift in the space-time continuum that could destroy the universe. Or maybe just mean he's never born, though for Marty that may be indistinguishable. (laughs) He then enlists the help of the Doc from 1955 to juice up the DeLorean and get Marty back to the future. Boom, title drop, etc, etc. And turn what at first seems a science fiction adventure into a time-travelling, culture clash, fish-out-of-water caper with elements of nostalgia, romance, coming-of-age and even alternative history. As with all time-travel films, it pays not to think about Back to the Future's technology too much, um, or, well, at all. (laughs) If you start asking yourself why not much more has changed in Marty's house when he returns than the furniture and happier parents, when his entire shared family history would would be alien to him, then you're going to find the whole thing as a house of cards. All time travel is nonsense, but, well, this film's conceits make a sort of sense on the surface, and the cause and effect stuff it pays attention to, and the general mechanics, are importantly easy to grasp for a broad audience. The likes of Primer may at least appear to have a greater ring of truthiness about them, but have, well, they have considerably less joy. Plus, a DeLorean is one hell of a lot more fun than man-sized Tupperware, or whatever that film had. (laughs) Though, amusingly, the original notion for the time machine in Back to the Future was a fridge of sorts. 
Like Jaws, Back to the Future is, for me, one of those rare, perfect films where there is nothing about it I think it could realistically be improved. While not every joke may land for everyone, while some performances may not be to the taste of all, structurally I think it's nigh on flawless, thanks to Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis' superb script. Everything is set up and paid off, and with no clunky exposition. From the opening scene, even though we may not realise it, we're being fed information that will become relevant later in the film. News stories about the Libyans, old black and white TV episodes, variants of Pepsi, the name of the mayor, the broken clock. (laughs) All important either to the plot or to set up comedy, but not one with a real lantern hung on it. Rather, all parts of the texture of Hill Valley and Marty's life. There are even references that would pay off in the sequels, but... This is thanks to the writer's skills and not some it was always meant to do a trilogy planning, or bullshit as that is usually called. (laughs) Bizarrely though, this incredibly well-crafted script managed to be too subtle for some people. Let's call those people idiots. Even people I generally held in reasonable regard like John Gruber of Daring Fireball who went a bit crazy earlier this year over a YouTube clip called Easter Egg or Thing in the Movie, Lone Pine Mall from Back to the Future, in which the reason for the name change of the shopping mall at the end of the film is spelled out for the hard of thinking. Jeebus. (laughs) This isn't a lot of people belatedly noticing that creepy wee bastard pointing to his junk at the end of part three. This is something that was related to significant plot points, action and crucial locations. But I digress. Easter egg. Sorry, did it again. While Back to the Future may now be further away from us than 1955 was from Marty McFly, I think it still stands up incredibly well, though of course it's difficult for me to be objective about this. However, this will not stop me, and you can consider my recommendation both entirely objective and utterly unassailable. You know, I think you're probably correct, um, because there's plenty of films that have kind of been woven into the fabric of our lives for as long as we've known what a life or a film is and mm-hmm. Back to the Future and its uh, follow-ups are kind of one of those sets of films. There's obviously other ones, things like Star Wars, which then I've reappraised in the cold light of day and not found them uh, anything like as good as I did when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, but I think Back to the Future holds up just as well. Um, I was really quite happy to go back and see this because uh, I haven't seen it in a, a good long while, really. Um, but it, it still really does hold up. Um, the Basically, it's a really cleverly written script. It's it's probably only after you've watched it a couple of times you realise quite how well all these cards are kind of laid out, um, as you kind of as you, you mentioned earlier. But just also, it's quite intelligently done, yep. given that it also features a wide mix of comedy. So there's a lot, there's broad slapstick and all that here, um, and all of it is done really, really well. People have their, their moments of kind of slapstick in films that they like. The only one I've ever really liked is Marty tuning up the amplifier at the start of this <laughs> film and getting blown back across the room by it. Um, it's, it's perfect. And almost everything in it is perfect or setting up something that will be perfect later on in the film and in some cases in later films yep. as well. Uh, it's a really, really well-observed, really funny. Crucially, that is, of course, the crucial point is it's incredibly funny. Yeah, Michael J. Fox is terrific in the role. Uh, he brings a lot of energy to it and, of course, 
Christopher Lloyd is absolutely fantastic. Uh, yeah, yep. clearly scene stealing, but scene stealing, he's brilliant in it. Um, both bring just a tremendous amount of energy and drive and enthusiasm to it, and it all just kind of works really well. There's no better comedy coming out of the 80s, I don't think, than this. Um, even things like Ghostbusters, or whatever, is, uh, I, I don't think it works as well as this, and this holds up better than it. It's just cleverer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, really great uh, stuff. We're really happy to go back to the boxes again. Cool stuff. Yeah, I, mean, I wouldn't compare to Ghostbusters at all. I, mean, I like Ghostbusters, but Ghostbusters was fine then and it's fine now. Whereas this mm-hmm. is, I really think it's a classic. Yeah. And yeah, there's a lot of really good stuff in performance and Dean Candy's photography and the. Mm-hmm. There aren't actually that many effects in it, which is good because some of the, the special effects don't hold up so well, but just like at least the, the design sure. of the car and stuff, really great, yeah. really fun. A lot of really good performances, but it's based on this incredible script it's mm-hmm. so well written and it really does it just sets up stuff so subtly um mm-hmm. that you could miss it but maybe you've taken it on subconsciously you know you didn't notice but your brain did <laughs> it's just so well crafted and yeah it's really funny but it's it's just clever too and it's just so much fun yeah and then you you combine that with yeah uh, Christopher Lloyd, that's Doc Brown is one of the classic characters of film, I think. He's just he's so recognizable. Yeah. Christopher Lloyd's so good. And he's still at the whole scene stealing thing, as we were discussing just a couple of months ago, Scott, when he um, he basically yeah. as amazing <laughs> as um Bob Odenkirk is in Nobody, Christopher Lloyd manages to almost steal that film from him. Yeah. <laughs> um, in his very small role. And yeah, Michael J. Fox is great, you know. Yeah, I did mention but it's partly exasperation and partly amusement that um, Hollywood keeps casting people who are nowhere near the age they're supposed to be in these films. I think Michael J. Fox was about 24 when he did this and he's meant to be 17. Like, well, no, it never works. It's never believable. They just look stupid. But him being short or maybe helps. But in this film, I just don't care because he's so good in it. Mm. Um, he's some of the best reactions I think I've ever seen. Um, yeah. <laughs> And I was watching some of the Back to Future extras in the, the Blu-ray box set this afternoon. Like, uh, and I think it's either Bob Zemeckis or maybe Steven Spielberg, who was a producer in this, had said, you know, like it said that great acting is reacting. I'm not sure 100% how true that is, but this is a, a pretty good um, stake in the ground for the, the reacting thing because his, his reactions are so good and there's so much of the, the comedy comes from that. Mm-hmm. And it's another of those films, you know, that was that could have been so different if it had had the <laughs> yeah the cast Eric originally. Stoltz. <laughs> Eric Stoltz. I mean, they'd wanted uh, Michael J. Fox from the beginning, but he was tied up with family ties on TV. Couldn't get out of the contract, and they shot five weeks with Eric Stoltz. Yeah. And I'm saying, you know, <laughs> he's he's a fine actor, but he's just not got the right the vibe for this character. And then they were so committed to Michael J. Fox that they got funded from the studio to basically throw away five weeks of filming. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and but I'm glad they did because it's fantastic. It's just, he's so good. He works so well with Christopher Lloyd. Leah Thompson's great. Crispin Glover's suitably odd. Yes. Um, which is partly why he's cast. But it gives his, it gives George McFly this kind of slightly weird character. Yeah. Um, and then I just... It's just one of those films as well that's so very, very fun. I mean, it doesn't... It's not like it's not taking itself seriously. But it's not like, you know, pole-faced either. It's like, 
enough sort of belief in the the situation for it to work. And then Christopher Lloyd was directed to do like for the doc to absolutely believe everything he was saying. He was he's playing that dead straight. Yeah. Which is what provides a lot of the comedy <laughs> as well. And then yeah. again, Marty's reaction to him too. But it's just like the fun stuff, like Marty invented both rock and roll and skateboarding. Yeah. <laughs> I just love those wee touches. It's, it's something that I think must have tickled Robert Zemeckis because it, it's a heavy chunk of that in Forrest Gump. Um, yeah. Which he did about nine yeah. years after this. Of like people being in, uh, involved with the history and stuff. Uh, I guess it comes to you, but it's just, it's fun. And even, even from the beginning, you know, it's having a wee bit of fun because some of the music's done by Huey Lewis in the news and the start of the film has Huey Lewis and it's saying, oh, this music's rubbish and it's too loud. Yeah. <laughs> when he's playing his music, I was like, okay, it's, you know, it's a nice sense of fun in this film all the way through. Um, without ever being too arch. Um, so yeah, this is, again, it's like a, one of the reasons I'm saying it was, Scott, it was hard for me to object because I've never like, gone more than probably a handful of years before watching this again I've always loved this film mm. but it stands up, it's so well made it's so fun that you can't really not love it surely it's just it's such a great film yes, yes um, I don't, we've been talking for about 15 minutes of this not to mention Thomas F. Wilson I don't think but uh, yeah, oh, I, yes, I love Biff yeah, as well he's great yeah. <laughs> another, yeah. um, um, another really iconic sort of dumb bully character is just great in this and, and all the subsequent films um yeah really great i know it's it's a it's kind of had a little bit of stick by people who you know that the whole kind of inventing rock and roll thing um you know i get you you could maybe take that the wrong way if you're really taking this as a serious film there's <laughs> something that seriously happened um but yeah um no i, I don't think there's any mean spirited in any of this uh even though as well, there's a whole John Mulaney stand-up routine about it. Yes, it's a kind of a slightly weird film, if you think of invented time travel and basically then has to stop his mum from falling in love with him. is a strange pitch for an elevator pitch for a film, but it does not come across anything like that way uh, when you actually watch the film of it at all. It's uh, just so, well pretty much wholesome in a long way. I mean, that's the worst thing that happens yeah. to people is they're getting covered in manure at the end of it. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's all just uh, really light-hearted at the same time. It, is, it, it takes itself seriously enough uh, for the kind of emotion of it to actually work as well as the comedy beats of it. So it's just really great. Yeah. <laughs> um, if there is, well, there, there is one reservation I have for the film, and it's perhaps worse because you were mentioning Thomas F. Wilson, I, apparently he's like basically very much the opposite of Biff um, in mm. real life but he was like he was told to play dead straight as well but there is one bit where it's getting a bit rapey true yeah. it's the one bit of the film I really don't like and it, and it doesn't um, but it's in that kind of area when he's been a bit too forceful with Lorraine and it's like slightly uncomfortable with that um, and nothing happens it's like the fact is they are tall I don't like um, yeah because it's relating to the hero moment but it's like yeah I don't know it's, it feels like it just edges slightly too far and honestly it's yeah. basically my only complaint about the film is that because um, mm-hmm. the rest of it's so fun um, just a <laughs> So we're talking about things that might have been as well with Eric Stoltz and like and then like the original idea of the of how to get the the energy at the end was to um run the DeLorean into an atomic bomb test. 
but which <laughs> quite glad they didn't do it. Only they, they didn't do that in the end because they didn't have the money for it. But then it worked so much better because yeah. Um, and that's again, listening to the or rather watching these extras this afternoon, and Bob Smeck was told me like, you know, that's good because it meant that the the history actually tied into Hill Valley because like yeah, a, an atomic bomb drop. All then all the world knew exactly when that happened. Whereas it, it was very you had to know that this thing was going to happen at this time in the town you were in. Yeah. Uh, the other interesting potential change is that Sid Sheinberg, the head of Universal at the time, apparently had a single note about the film. Whereas, you know, executives very often stick their oar in. Yeah, yeah he um, had one single note, which was about the title. Apparently he was confused by the title and thought audience uses would be too, and suggested they call it Spacemen from Pluto. <laughs> What? Yeah. I mean, what? Yeah. So, uh, so that's amusing, but I kind of like how um, Steven Spielberg dealt with it. Uh, apparently, Bob Zemeckis went to him like, Steven, you've got to do something. We can't do this. Uh, Steven Spielberg said, yeah, we all really liked Sid Sheinberg. And, you know, if if he'd been one of those executives on this film, had been giving him lots and lots of notes, you could sort of like pick and choose. Yeah. You know, but he like, no, he was like, this guy they really liked, but he, um, he only gave them one note about the whole film and it was about the title. Um, so uh, Steven Spielberg said he sent this, his note to him saying, thanks for your note this morning. It, it's good to know you've got such a good sense of humour. I'll give us a really good laugh when we really needed that because we're committing to complete yeah. the film. Um, and apparently he never mentioned it again. <laughs> so that's, that's quite a diplomatic way to, to handle that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One other thing I'd like to mention, so you mentioned at the beginning, Scott, the posters, yes, um, I, I mentioned that very recently in other films, but how censored it was, because you know, modern film posters in general are garbage. Yeah. Whereas like, the the classic Drew Struzan poster for Back to the Future is fantastic. It just gets, like, it's got so many of the elements of the film in it, and it has the mm. tone just spot on, just in that film, that poster. Yeah. It's great. It's, it's a great poster in itself, and for a series that has this many running gags, the fact that the posters themselves are also running gags, yeah. I think it's just fantastic. Uh, it really ties everything together. Um, yeah, just brilliant. Love them. <laughs> yeah. I think that features maybe one of those films that you've probably picked up enough of that you, you probably know the general, just without having seen it, but I, if you haven't, I still recommend doing so because it's such, oh, yes. a, it's such an entertaining film. It's so, so good-hearted as well. And don't be like the the whole idea of the sort of mother son romance thing. It's like it's a fairly small. It's not a small. It's not a small importance, but fairly small in terms of running time. And it's actually it's solved in a quite again quite wholesome way. Yeah, in a way that like it's like ah yeah that that sort of works in that situation and it, without it having been any way creepy or anything. Although you can see at the time why Disney. Um, turned it down because that was <laughs> yeah. it was that scene that made Disney turn it down when they were looking for um, a studio at the time. <laughs> uh, shall we move on then, Scott? Because like, certainly, as I said in my my note uh, review, whatever you'd call that, the words that I said, call it what you want. Uh, <laughs> that, that this was very much not planned as a trilogy, despite like the ending of the film with like the where we are going. We don't need Rhodes' comment. That was just meant to be fun. Um, <laughs> It was a massive hit right away. Um, so, unsurprisingly, uh, sequels were ordered up. Uh, if there's ever proof that um, it wasn't intended as a sequel, it's having to 
painstakingly recreate the entire set four years later. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, following on directly from the first instalment, we make good on Doc Brown's offer to stop unpleasantness happening to Marty and Jennifer, now a recast Elizabeth Shoes kid, in the far-flung future of 2015. Impersonating the junior version of himself, uh, Marty stops his involvement with Griff Tannen's criminal scheme, played by Thomas F. Wilson, of course, with only the minimum of hoverboard-related mayhem. It's just a shame that Marty can't take the antique sporting almanac back to 85 with him for betting purposes. But that's not the scruple that the elderly Biff Tannen has, who takes advantage of a window of distraction to nip back to 55 and give his younger self the means to gamble his way to unlimited wealth, creating an alternate 1985 where he's one of the richest, most powerful men around, and also Marty's stepdad after George McFly's death due to contract negotiation failure. (laughs) If you're aged between 35 and 55 and exhibit symptoms, consult your GP immediately. Realising what's happened, it's up to Doc and Marty to stop them, while Jennifer continues to remain as asleep as is possible to avoid having to write lines for girls or something. Um, So, off they head to 1955 to nick the almanac back from young Biff, while avoiding the versions of themselves already kicking about this cluttered temporal junction. In what's still in the main comedy, there's not much point uh, in me giving you much more of a recommendation than to say it remains extremely funny, due again to a very clever script with precision strike levels of recurring gags, sharp rejoinders, expertly paced cutaways, and of course the exuberance and energy that Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd bring to the roles. Like the first, it's going very much for a pop sci-fi feel rather than any sort of serious prediction of the future, although you could make a case for it getting more right than wrong, flying cars notwithstanding, and at any rate, this is much more interested in characters than in technology. Of course, a lot of these characters turn out to be the same actors in a range of makeups, which for me at least is more charming than chintzy, although your mileage may vary. I don't have a great deal more to say about this before opening this up to the floor. It's a great sequel that plays with, if not exactly reinterprets the original, the latter act dancing around the plot of the first film giving a pleasant twist on things that make this a much more memorable sequel than it could have been. In short, it is really, really funny. Watch it as well. Yeah, this is actually my least favourite of the, the trilogy. I still enjoy it a great deal. The problems I have with it more is that... Um, well, actually, what, before we go into that, what I noticed this thing you were mentioning, Elizabeth Shue, and like, the, the weird way she's kind of just cut out of the the film, her character. Um, yeah. I like Elizabeth Shue a lot, and she's actually pretty bad in this, which is weird. She was recast because the, the original woman, Claudia Wells, who played Jennifer in the first film, had... Wikipedia just has personal reasons. I don't know if that's raising a family or something else. I don't know. But she didn't want to do it, so apologies yeah. issue. And, and this is post Karate Kid. And, and again, while she was like sidelining Karate Kid, I mean, just a couple of years ago when we were talking about that, Scott, um, yeah. on here, uh, that I really, really like her and that. And I like Elizabeth Shaw a lot. But I think she's kind of crap in this. And I'm not quite sure why. Maybe just like lacking material. I think that's it, because from what I understand, the uh, Gail and Zemeckis, they, they kind of wrote themselves into a corner because they weren't really expecting this to be a trilogy. If if they had their brothers and could remake the first one, they probably wouldn't have ended it with having to bring Jennifer along, seems to be, yeah. seems to be what they were saying, because they just didn't fit into what they were trying to do. So she kind of gets sidelined an awful lot in this. So yes, yeah. She doesn't really have anything to do in the film at all, um, apart from, I mean... Yeah, she's she's kind of used as a distraction to let someone steal a time machine at one point, and that's basically <laughs> it. She she doesn't really have a function as a as a any agency in this film whatsoever. So I, I think they would probably have rather not had her in the film in the first place if you can't give anything for that character to do other than just deal with a hangover from the first film that they wouldn't want to have done otherwise. So yeah, it's a bit of a shame for her, her character because she doesn't really have anything to do. So what what do you do with that material? 
I don't know if you could really do it any better, to be honest. Um, she's not great, but I don't know if anyone could be given her first act is basically to look into a uh, a gadget that makes her faint for the first hour of the film and then have a couple of lines and then sleep the next hour. So, you know, it's a, it's a tough gig. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that, that's about our problem. Again, that's not her problem, really. Uh, the, the only... Oh, so this is very much a. Well, it's a film of two halves, surely. But for me, it's very much a film of two halves. And that the future stuff is just—it's too goofy. Hmm. I mean, there's some important. I can stuff, see that, yeah. Yeah, there's some important stuff. They're like setting up certain abilities of Marty and a couple of other things, and then there's some sort of callbacks to the original. Even like in camera movements too, because there's a scene when yeah, the the pan up and him kind of walking through the town square and sort of spinning round and yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, that one as well. The one I'm thinking of yeah. in particular is, um, and it's like it's case subtle too. And I love this stuff uh, in the diner in the first one when Biff um, hmm. kind of the camera sort of moves round and you just like see that like behind Biff and it looks like how big he is to Martin. It kind of almost like yeah. he's got taller. Then in the second one, they go to the future when it's Griff, Biff's grandson. He has the boots that put him up like that, but it's copying that same camera move. And the, yeah, <laughs> there's, there's lots of little subtle things that's really good, but just in general, the the future stuff is just too goofy, and I don't like it. <laughs> it's partly also just suffering from that thing of like future stuff almost always looks like garbage in films because it it ages so quickly, and I don't think yeah. it ever looked that good even in 1989. But the it's just over the top whereas like you go into the past you're safe and if you go into the the far far distant future you're probably okay the near future dangerous territory um (laughs) and almost everything in that looks terrible like the the giant flat screen tvs they got that right that's about it Uh, you know like well, we have, have to have special future food for like miniature pizzas that get rehydrated to massive pizzas and things. And <laughs> whereas, like, uh, what I quite liked was the restraint and the design of the DeLorean in the first film. I've had what I like a lot. It's just like it's quite mechanical, but it also feel and obviously that's not set in the future. But it's it's kind of it has like a home built look, and it just feels it's not also smooth and shiny and Star Trek or anything. Whereas in the future, in Back to the Future Part 2, like everything's all kind of curves and sleek and stuff. And it's like, yeah, didn't really get that right, did you? Yeah, and a few other bits are just a bit a bit goofy. And um, also a bit odd, like the headlight tit. Did you notice that, Scott? Uh, no. Right. Uh, when Marty Jr. goes home, like there's that big plasma screen there and he turns on like 17, well, that's like, like six TV channels at once. Yeah. Right. And one of them is a special offer for, um, I think, is it cost a company called Bottoms Up or something? Some sort of plastic surgery company, I assume, who's doing a two for one offer on breast implants, the super inflatable tit, and the headlight tit, which glows. That sounds cool. Yeah. I'll take two. That's just weird. <laughs> um, so, as like I said, it, it's super goofy. Whereas the second half, while it's sort of the first film again because they're working around it and I gotta need to stop gesticulating when I'm doing these things you can't see my hands nobody can see my hands <laughs> they're, because they're they're working around uh, the plot points of the first one and the, so the settings and stuff it's one of the most inventive films I've ever seen the second half of this it's so cleverly done yeah it really um, is yeah 
partly through necessity for what they need to do with the plot, and partly just for like you know fun and inter- um, entertainment. It's like it's it's really really cleverly done. The way it is fitted in and that it doesn't it doesn't like uh, wreck any continuity of anything like that of characters or things. It's just it's really really well done. So I love the second half of Bad Future Part Two, but the first half mostly leaves me cold. I mean, there's enough fun, there's enough humour in there, and, and Doc and Marty together are always great. But it's just a bit that the whole future thing is all just a bit naff, and I'm always slightly uncomfortable watching Marty McFly play his own daughter or Michael J. Fox play Marty McFly's daughter. That's just weird. <laughs> I, I'm not quite sure why that's in there. Uh, otherwise, yeah, it's still really good. It's not one of these films I don't like. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely a film where it's hard to watch the second half of this film and th- think that it wasn't planned when they were doing the first one. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's so really well intricately done. Yeah, again, I mean, like, there's a lot of the mechanical stuff is important there, and um, then, like, as I said, when I through this to you, like they had to recreate the the set was built on a back lot, so I mean, that was helpful, but yeah. Um, they had to recreate everything again twice for modern day Hill Valley and um, 1955 Hill Valley. Well, actually, but and then not to recreate it, but did it again for the future one. But um, yeah. in painstaking detail, uh, mm-hmm. that was a lot of work. And if you were planning for a trilogy, you would have just kept the stuff, yeah, destroyed it. <laughs> but yeah, so there's a lot of that, and like Dean Cundy's photography again to get the lighting to match and stuff. And the makeup to get all that look the same. But now the, the strength is once again the screenplay. It's amazing. It's yeah. so clever. It's so strong. So well written. And it's just yeah. It's, I'm in awe of the quality of the screenwriting in this trilogy. It's the backbone yeah. of it all. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible, isn't it? Let's see if that continues into part three. Spoilers. Yes, but yes. What's what's the last part of the Back to the Future trilogy about then, Drew? Uh, roads. Where we are going, we don't need roads. <laughs> Those are our railroads and tracks. Look, just shush. <laughs> the reason we don't need roads is because we're going to the Doc's favourite era, the Old West, and horses don't need roads. Though they may travel more quickly along them, but A, I don't know about horses, and B, shut up. <laughs> After the events of the end of part two, we find... Oh, well, sorry, we didn't actually talk about the end of that, so the end of part two, the DeLorean explodes because it hit by lightning, just as Marty's about to go back to the future. So, you know, he's a bit stuck in 1955. Um, so after the end of that, and the courier arriving in the middle of the road with a letter he's had for 70 years to deliver to him, we find Marty and the dog back at the dog's house where, after convincing the dog that Marty is really there, the duo recovers the DeLorean from the old mine in which it has been stored since 1885 to send Marty back home. While doing this, though, they discover that Doc Brown is going to die a few days after his letter was written, so Marty has to make a stop in the 19th century before he can finally return to his 1985 life. And back in 1885, Marty adopts the moniker Clint Eastwood. What a stupid name for a cowboy. <laughs> Meets up with the Doc, other McFlys, Tannins and Stricklands and generally risks messing up the space-time continuum again. Though this time it's Doc Brown who's the biggest danger to that, falling in love as he does with Mary Steenburgen's Clara. The plot isn't a great deal different from the first film, and the fish-out-of-water stuff works in a similar way, so 
part three is understandably less good than the first. But it's always been my second favourite of the trilogy, perhaps in large part due to the Western setting. It retains an extremely well-constructed screenplay, with lots of payoffs to things subtly set up in part two in particular, such as Marty being a crack shot and a reference to a fistful of dollars. Though by this point in the trilogy, while it's still a great deal of fun, the film is certainly suffering from diminishing returns, and some of the elements seem very forced, most obviously the presence of Leah Thompson as part of Marty's family in 1885. She's there for the running joke, and probably for a degree of... fairness? Loyalty? But her role is either very silly or very icky, depending on how you view it. Hmm. But it's less goofy than the first half of part two, though it does unfortunately carry on that film's most awkward new idea that, out of nowhere, Marty now can't abide being called Chicken. That never sat well with me. Other than that, though, I still heartily enjoy it. Oh, apart from the creepy wee kid pointing at his junk. I mean, that kid's creepy enough, but then he's pointing at his junk. Why? What are you doing, child? It's weird. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, in my memory, part three is always the one I like the least. But I think, looking at them again, I, I actually like them all just as much as each other. I, I don't really want to separate them all that much. Yeah. Um, I, I think in when I'm thinking about it, you know, in the abstract, having not seen it for a while, I think it's the one where they're not exactly running out of ideas, but they're kind of getting there. It's like, well, they've done the future, they've done the, the past, uh, for, further in the past. That's fine. And and kind of thrown together that way. But that's doing it a disservice because, again, it is still a very cleverly written script. Perhaps, perhaps less so in terms of the way that the second one could dance around the first one or the, just the, the kind of whole concept of the first one in, in the first place so the third one I suppose as you mentioned kind of diminishing returns it is perhaps the least interesting in a kind of abstract kind of sense to it but when actually watching to it it's just as funny as all the other ones and frankly that's all you should really be caring about in a comedy so uh, I got just as many laughs out of this one as I did out of the other two uh, and some of my actual favourites the, the final um, it's a small moment but the, the, after two and three-quarter films of um, Doc Brown exclaiming, Great Scott, and Bart <laughs> McFly saying, oh, it's heavy. heavy yeah. Having those switch round yeah. just for that one instance is hilarious. <laughs> works incredibly well. It's delivered absolutely spectacularly by both men. So, yeah, it, it, it works very well in that regard. Um, yeah, I, I don't really want to be drawn too much in kind of ranking them. I think they're all worthwhile. I think it is a, a rare case of a trilogy where every one of them works and is I can recommend without caveats and there's precious few films that make it to three films where you can't see some kind of precipitous drop off in quality at some point. So yes, this certainly deserves to be bought as part of the box set and watched all in one run rather than uh, maybe just politely ignoring one of them. So yeah, it is incredibly funny uh, for all the same reasons that the first two were uh, without going over it too much. But yes, it, the, the, the actors bring the same amount of energy as I suppose would be sensible given that they were all kind of filmed at the same time. Not even back to back, I guess, for a lot of it. It was actually kind of a bit of crossover and all that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, it, it, it's all that works particularly well uh the, the characters are by this point are you know kind of set in stone and uh, really quite uh yeah iconic by this point and just continue on with that that kind of uh that kind of energy and uh and enthusiasm so it, it all works really well trailing off because i'm not sure i've got much more of a point to it other than to say that i like it uh, i'm not a massive fan of westerns so 
the setting is perhaps one of the less interesting ones for me. I really like Westerns. That's one of the reasons I really like that setting, but I was mm-hmm. aware that uh, you said recently you'd sort of come round to Westerns, but I know you've never been a, a big fan of them. Yes, certainly historically, I've never been much of a fan uh, of the Western or the era. I don't have any kind of interest or romance in that kind of era of, uh, of American culture. Um, but in terms of how it needs to be done for this kind of film, it all works particularly well because it's it's not it's not really a western. It's uh it's also not actually a pastiche. It still remains kind of fairly not reverential to the kind of western ethos, but uh, it it pays it more than enough service to be not be taken just, just as a joke. Uh, again, in common with all the other ones, it plows enough of a like kind of furrow of being serious enough with what it's trying to do uh, without actually being ridiculous. Although I do think perhaps the, one of the better uh, visual cutaways in this series is the, the, the kind of, when they're going back to 1885 and having to go drive at the uh, drive at the drive through wall, which has inscriptions of um, Native Americans charging in a war band yeah. at it, and saying, oh, in the past there won't be Indians there. And then, of course, there are. <laughs> Predictable, perhaps. But uh, yes, it, it, is a, it is a great little cutaway moment. And uh, yeah. Uh, one of many of the series, and yeah, yeah. yeah. A, a fitting end to a series is it's all on. Um, it, it remained of high quality all the way throughout, and yes, another fun film to watch and heartily recommended. Yeah. Uh, two and three definitely benefit from having been shot together, um, mm-hmm. but it's, there's a cohesiveness to the whole thing that you wouldn't understand that believe that it had been shot all together, mm-hmm. but that you could easily, if they had been written as a trilogy. Um, yeah. Whereas lots of other trilogies that were always meant to be a trilogy are quite clearly weren't. They, yeah. they just weren't. <laughs> whereas this, you could believe it. And there's so many love little running jokes too, but they don't overplay any one of them. Yeah, yeah. And there's some that you like, you feel is actually in there a lot, but it's not. I think the one of my favorite jokes is only tw- there twice. I think so. You can't even count that as a model. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. It's there in the first and the third, and like it's almost how I introduced my um, introduced part of three Scott. I, I very mm-hmm. nearly said my apologies for the crudeness of this um, recap, but uh, <laughs> yes, yes, I know it's not to scale, and it's I haven't had time to paint it, but <laughs> I, I just love that. It's so there's, there's uh, the real wealth of material there. Um, as you mentioned about buying the the box set too. It, for its 35th anniversary last year, it was released on 4K UHD Blu-ray, uh, which I have, and it looks amazing. Hmm. I've actually seen, I think I must have seen six or seven different versions of this now, at least, like, more clips of it, at least. Mostly thanks to Tecmon. Um, I think he's a big <laughs> fan of this film because when he's doing VCDs and um, all the other various old f- um, film formats, home video formats, he's like very often shown... Um, that and like Japanese laser disc compared to US laser disc and, and the VHS and stuff and the 4K UHD transfer is extremely good. I was so impressed by the transfer they've got out of that. The film looks better than it's ever done before. So you know if you have the facility to play back those, I certainly urge you to check those out. But um, even back when we were watching VHS in the 1980s, it looked yeah. it was amazingly fun. So that's all that really matters. Yes. And it contains perhaps my favourite ZZ Drop track. Uh, <laughs> you know, double back one. That double back, the, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, my favourite ZZ Top track. And only one that I know. The only one I know, that I know or care to know. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, how did you know I was going to say that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it really stands the test of time. Um, 
not a pun. Well, it is a pun, but it wasn't an intended one. Uh, <laughs> it's just a, a great deal of fun, this film, and it really stands up well. The only thing I think is that um, possibly younger people are going to watch this and kind of not realise why 1955 looks so weird when 1985 is going to look quite weird to them anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but for everybody else, you're, you're probably fine with that. And certainly if you've seen it before, just like you be assured it stands up. If you liked this in the past, I'm quite sure you're going to like it still now, but you should watch it again because it's great. Absolutely. I guess that's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. Hope you've encouraged, we've encouraged you to either watch Back to the Future or watch it again. And yes, we'll be saying goodbye until we come back to you with something um, less light and fluffy. Uh, <laughs> but we'll keep that as a surprise for now. If you want to contact us, you can do it through usual ways. You know, at Fuds on Film on Twitter podcast at fudsonfilm.com for email and godevilcompany.com slash fudsonfilm or whatever it is. Is that right Scott? I never used the damn thing. Sounds about right, yeah. Yes, until such time as we're talking to Christ. No. We're talking to Christ? <laughs> wow, that's a hell of an interview. <laughs> yeah, but mum had a DeLorean handy to go back. <laughs> Red Dwarf did that. Time travel. Went back to see Jesus. Uh, I'd also The Last Vampire on Earth mentioned that, but let's not talk about that. I'm rambling now. Goodbye. No, uh, yes, uh, until the next time we join you, uh, I have been Drew. Scott over there was definitely Scott. It sure was. And catch you on the flip side. Bye. <laughs>